Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Music, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Gamo Claire, and today I'm joined by Dan DiPiero, who's a visiting assistant professor of musicology at Ithaca College. We're going to be talking about his book, Contingent Encounters, Improvisation and Everyday Life, which was published in 2022. Thanks for coming on the show, Dan. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to talk about the book. So... Could we start maybe just by you telling us a little bit about your background, your path into scholarship, and what drew you to writing this book? Yeah, definitely. Um, In some form or another, this project has been with me a really long time. Um, I started as a jazz drummer. That was my first trajectory. Um, And that took me eventually to getting a a master's degree at uh, CalArts. And when I was there, I genuinely quite accidentally found myself in a sort of um, aesthetic theory seminar uh, because it was the only thing open and I needed a credit and, you know, I had absolutely no business being there. But um, once I was there, I got really, really hooked on reading critical theory and Um, I decided to stay on then and do another master's in this aesthetics and politics program because I was enjoying it so much. Um, In that program, we were reading a lot of uh, kind of uh, democratic political theory, political philosophy, a certain strain of thinking that sort of comes out of like Arendt, Merleau-Ponty, and has at the core of its thinking of democratic politics, this idea of contingency, um, or openness or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that just was super compelling to me because I had just, you know, spent the first sort of half of my life thinking about contingency in a completely different space, which was like improvised music. Um, and so I, yeah, my, my master's thesis was like trying to basically compare is the contingency that jazz musicians are thinking about comparable or does it have anything to say about the kind of contingency that's really fundamental to these political theorists? Um, 
So it was a very, very different project in many ways, but fundamentally it had this dual structure. It was like the first part was music and the second part was politics. And that kind of kernel core idea has stayed with me um, all throughout. So after that, I, I went to Ohio State and got a PhD in the comparative studies department, uh, which was perfect. I, I kept the comparison part like really quite literal in the book. Again, it's split into two halves. Um, there's something about that that I always found generative, even if it was kind of frustrating to some editors along the way. Um, yeah, and the but the project has changed a ton uh, since that time. the The work that I draw on has changed, and in the meantime, I had discovered this extant field of critical improvisation studies, uh, which had tons to say about this topic that was near and dear to me. So uh, I spent a lot of the PhD like digging into that material and uh, trying to figure out where my arguments fit in relationship to what people had been saying. And so as you say, you're kind of throughout, right, and in the book quite explicitly, you're managing to hold these things together while comparing them as well. I was just wondering the extent to which, and you touched on this a little bit at points in the book, the extent to which your experience as a jazz musician literally informs maybe the writing process or the research process. Um, you know, what are there, is there kind of um, aspects, of, I guess, the workflow or anything else like that? Because it seemed like, given that that's the subject of the book, it'd be quite interesting to know if that came through into your own practice too. Yeah. Um, the, the, it's definitely reciprocal. Uh, although I have to say that on the back end of it, you know, finding out where the, the book shows up in my musical practice is a little bit more difficult to put a finger on these days, especially as I'm like teaching full time and so forth. Um, but, but the reverse is, is easier. Um, there's, there's a, a couple of ways that, you know, my musical experience really directly factors into the book. The most obvious of which is if you look at the three musical case studies in the first part of the book, those are directly informed. My choices there are directly informed by the kind of music that I'm most familiar with, that I have the most experience with, and that I suspected, you know, I'd be able to have some sort of an insight into uh, you know, on a practical level. So I'm, when I'm looking at Eric Dolphy, uh, Mr. K, this uh, Norwegian free improvising band, and then the Chris Davis, Ingrid Lobrock duo, this is sort of all coming in what we can think about as a kind of avant-garde or free improvised space. And that's the music that has been most interesting to me as a performer, as a composer and so forth. Um, so there's that on a sort of practical logistical level. Um, yeah. And there are also moments in the book where I talk about experiences that I've had playing that really, um, opened up something for me in the research. Uh, and, and for me, the two examples there are like the one I give in the beginning of the book is I had this, um, performance that went pretty badly wrong. <laughs> um, but instead of uh, thinking about that as a kind of standard narrative of, you know, what I call the redemptive power of improvisation, um, to me, it, it signaled actually, hang on, we weren't supposed to be improvising here. Like we were playing this piece, it was all written down. 
and and improvisation is happening anyway because we mess something up. So uh, improvisation didn't really come in to save the day there, but what it sort of got me thinking about was like how did improvisation happen where it wasn't supposed to happen, and that started me thinking about these external contingencies and material parameters that really um, affect what musicians do and that I think most um, theories of improvised collectivity pay a little bit less attention to. Most most music scholars, understandably, are concerned with what's the band doing, you know? But beyond the band, there are all these other factors that are contributing to the scene in that moment. In this case, I didn't have a music stand with me and it, you know, it really messed things up. So um, I started looking at those external factors that affect contingencies. The other thing, finally, in this long answer, um, which maybe we can come back to at the end is like a thing that I put in the back of the book where I talk about my experience um, improvising while I'm thinking about something that's completely unrelated to the music that's happening, right? It's not an ideal musical uh, experience when that's happening, but distractions do happen. And that distinction between improvising on the one hand and improvising while knowing and paying attention to your improvising on the other hand that distinguish uh that distinguishing sort of uh criteria was really generative for me thinking about some of the political consequences of improvisation uh near the end of the book yeah i think actually both those anecdotes were so perfect for, for anyone who's played any kind of music you know i think certainly for me, done a little bit, bits of performing, kind of the default mode of performance is much closer to those ordinary, mundane, and sometimes like um, compromised forms of improvisation, uh, not just performance, but playing in general, where you're improvising while thinking about something else or improvising to try and uh, overcome uh, something that's gone a bit wrong and just to overcome mundane practicalities because the situation in which you're performing and it, everything is perfect, perfect per se, is much rarer and much more exceptional than most music that most people make, I think. I, I, so I think they were both such um, good ways of kind of grounding the, the whole rest of the book. And I, yeah, I did really appreciate them. And I, I guess that kind of moves into what I feel like is right. one of the central um, themes of the book is, is a desire to kind of demystify or de-exceptionalize not just improvisation, but kind of musical experience in general. Um, and does this stem from any particular motive or any particular set of readings? Because it felt very refreshing to me, who you know, especially in some jazz studies, but a lot of the kind of popular music and politics literature too, there is a understandable, as you said, kind of tendency to overburden music maybe in some ways politically. Um, and so I wondered if, if there was a particular impetus driving this, this line of your book. Yeah, that's a great question. Um or at least one that I, I love talking about. I, I feel like it could obviously go on for quite a while. So um, excuse me if I do. Uh, you're totally right. One of the main things that I was trying to do here is to demystify improvisation generally and musical improvisation specifically. At first, this was um, just, you know, this was driven by, on the one hand, my experience of improvising, which I was starting to see in terms of pure contingency, um, not openness, right, uh, and freedom, but like 
contingency, which can sometimes be open and and surprising and generative in the way that people tend to talk about, but just as often can can be very restrictive and and debilitating or boring or unremarkable. Right, you're you're in a situation that has a combination of possibilities and impossibilities, openings and closures. Um, some of which can feel empowering and some of which might not. And that is, you know, anytime you're in a situation like that, you are improvising whether you're thinking about it or not. Uh, That's kind of how I'm going in, you know, to the dissertation, trying to make my arguments, so forth and so on. Um, I'm bringing that perspective into my research and I'm finding in the research that not a lot of people are writing about improvisation in that kind of a way. So I'm encountering in critical improvisation studies um, a lot of literature that um, seems to be making a kind of progressive case for improvisation. Um, I think in the book I talk about this uh, as a kind of utopian strain of improvisation scholarship, uh, you know, you get statements, for instance, like from uh, scholars like George Lipsitz uh, talking about improvisation being inherently anti-neoliberal. That really stuck with me um, because, you know, again, like I was just saying, to me, improvisation by the time I was in the research at this point had become something quite different than that. Um, but I was also very explicitly starting to do the research into everyday life studies, um, uh, you know, starting with the sort of traditional French characters, but already thinking about, uh, you know, um, uh, short lines in Berlant, you know, in Cruel Optimism about improvising because you're flailing, because because things are are you know inequitable, because you're having to scramble to um, you know make uh, routes out of your circumstances that people in more privileged positions wouldn't have to bother fussing with. And so there was just something. I mean, and I talk about this all the time, but I think about like if your car breaks down, you have to improvise, right? And that's not glamorous. Um, it's a, a it's a problem that if you are you know better positioned in society you don't have to bother with improvising so Im- improvisation is something that in these often social situations it's easier to see than in musical situations how it be- can become weaponized or imposed on people or it becomes mandatory for you to improvise so there was just something horribly incongruous to me about reading all this improvisation scholarship, excuse me, that, uh, you know, will admit that those kinds of negative experiences of improvisation do exist, but aren't concerned with studying them or talking about them. And they're kind of tacitly written out of existence. Um, So that was starting to get me a little bit bothered, I suppose. And then um, I started doing some research uh, for the beginning of the book about improvisations you know, how does improvisation appear in popular discourse, in in advertisements, in magazines? You know, what's its function ideologically as as it gets used? And lo and behold, what it 
you know, what I found there is, is that it seems to be this kind of mirror image of, in a limited way, but a, a real way, what a lot of improvisation scholars had been claiming on behalf of the concept. So you'll have think tanks and um, acting schools and Life Kit on NPR, all publishing these articles about how learning how to improvise can transform your capacity to do X, you know, um, like shockingly medical improvisation is a thing that exists. Right. Uh, I, I still kind of can't get over that one, but the idea is the same in all cases. Like let's get everybody together. We'll do a theater training exercise to get us all comfortable with ambiguity. And then we're going to be better X, better problem solvers at work, you know, better surgeons, I guess. Um, and so improvisation as something that you can tap as an alternative to the quote unquote normal way of doing things is being advocated in popular discourse. It's also being advocated, albeit towards different ends, more progressive ends in improvisation scholarship, but the logic seemed to me to be sort of fundamentally the same. At the same time, then uh, uh, I'm coming across the work of Vijay Iyer, who's made these incredibly poignant critiques about um, uh, the question of, or the absence of discussions of difference in improvisation scholarship. Uh, and he points out, you know, um, uh, improvisation is a word that was, you know, for for the first several decades of jazz's existence, it was a word that was used to stigmatize the African American musicians with whom it was associated. Uh, and now we've resuscitated the concept as something valuable, but oftentimes that scholarship is not even citing black scholars, not even you know, citing uh, the communities from whom this concept really emerges. And um, it's now being used as something that can accrue all sorts of epistemological and financial value to the scholars and institutions that are, you know, getting all excited about this concept all of a sudden, right? So that became very important to me as well, um, was to try to think like really deeply about how difference and contingency and parameters external to the immediate local improvisatory scene really affect how, if you know, if we take that seriously and we follow the line all the way through, how does that change what we think about improvisation at the very end? Um, finally, I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up because it's something that um, I didn't catch in time to make it into the book. If you want a real powerful and and dark example of how, of why I suppose I advocate that we shouldn't pin all our hopes as progressive scholars on improvisation as a concept, I would point to the um, murder trial for Derek Chauvin, in which uh, one of the prosecutors tries to use improvisation as a defense for Derek Chauvin's actions, right? He says something, he's, he's uh, uh, questioning a police lieutenant and he says something to the effect of, isn't it true that in the line of duty, you're um, allowed to do whatever's necessary in the moment 
Yes, of course, blah, blah, blah. And that can even involve improvisation. Is that correct? You know, and, and yes, is the answer that's given in the courtroom, right? But the, the, the strategy there is clearly to suggest that the consequences of actions that you're, that were not pre-decided should be weighed less heavily than, than decisions that you decided in advance. So clearly mobilizing and weaponizing improvisation. And I think should give us some real pause. An example like that should give us some real pause around, you know, um, yeah, championing a concept that has so many different dimensions to it, dimensions that have not been equally attended to in the scholarship, I think. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like one of those moments of kind of grim vindication as a scholar, right, where um, you feel like your concept's kind of taken on a life of its own. But yeah, I mean, I think that and that's something that comes through so strongly throughout the book, really. And I think that quote you mentioned a while ago about the it being, you know, the suggestion that it is fundamentally anti-neoliberal. I was it's such a perfect rounding off to the, especially the second half of the book. And I was actually quite, um, I was impressed by your, the fact that you didn't put that in the introduction, you know, I'd have fallen over myself to introduce that as a way. And it, it, it rounds it off so well, you know, I thought it was good. And I have to say, one of the things that really drew me to this book in, in the first place is that I've got this, I've got my own kind of perverse obsession with jazz consultancy literature, you know, the kind of, and the way it's used in business management and I've been, I've been obsessed with that for ages and that was one of those things actually when I was doing my masters where I was like oh yeah maybe jazz isn't doesn't have this inherent goodliness to it you know and it can be bent to the will of, of all sorts of um very kind of perverse incentives so before we move into the um chapters and the case studies that you use I just wanted to kind of draw out one concept that I think is important you talk about kind of closed and open uh, versions of improvisational contingency which I think is quite key to to the rest of the book. So I wondered if you could maybe talk us through those. Yeah. Um, that is definitely key in terms of my framing of the idea of contingency. Um, I wanted to try to capture the dual sense of that word. Um, and, and I'm thinking in the beginning of the book, like going back to Aristotle's discussions of it, you know, um, for that understanding of contingency, it's associated with these kind of like accidental qualities, like things that um, are sort of not fundamental to the thing in question. So the example I use is like um, uh, it's contingent if a person has like blonde hair or brunette hair it doesn't affect the fact that they're a person fundamentally, right? It's this accidental quality. Um, but the fact that they have the color hair that they have is at the moment it's, it's fixed. You can, you can say that this thing that, um, might not have necessarily happened the way that it happened, it still happened. So the question is closed. Um, we're looking at it and we're saying the result of this thing is, you know, uh, is X. And that uh, is something that we, it didn't have to be that way, but it is. So the question is closed. And that seems to me to uh, be directly contradictory to the more contemporary understanding of contingency, which is more about this openness, like it's contingent on the outcome is contingent on things going a certain way. And so when we talk about musical improvisations in, in particular, contingency factors in there usually through the the prism of openness it's contingent because we don't know what's going to happen yet um to me 
those are both um, salient aspects of the concept that we have to try to think about, or I advocate that we should think about them simultaneously and, and not privilege one or the other. I think a lot of improvisation scholarship privileges the openness of, of the process while pretty much ignoring the closed, already already determined, and I'm not saying determined in perpetuity because, you know, thinking sort of in a Deleuzian way, like people are always becoming and changing and so forth and so on. But for this provisional moment of improvisatory, let's say music or, or interaction, there are certain parameters that are fixed in place. Like my, my identity, I have a certain idea about my identity. I've had certain experiences based on my identity. I have a certain set of skills that I've practiced, um, that I'm going to bring to the table in this moment that are not going to radically grow or change all of a sudden. They're pretty much there, you know, when I come to the situation. So, and, and beyond that, thinking extra musically about the parameters that are closed, that are fixed in place, right? You have the physical environment, you have the discursive environment, you have the sort of larger um, sociopolitical questions about um, uh, race, gender, sexuality, and the power structures that inhere around those identities. Those things are fixed and they are brought to bear in the moment that we are ostensibly privileging as open and full of possibilities. Oh, okay, yeah, it's full of possibilities, but they're of a certain kind and they're, um, you know, routed in certain directions, perhaps. So I do think, um, hopefully, I make a convincing argument that um, thinking about the closed particularities, which render the situation singular, is just as important as thinking about what becomes open and how every time we get together and try to improvise or don't try to improvise and find ourselves improvising anyway. Yeah, and I think that kind of takes us quite nicely onto the first musical example um, that you look at, which is Eric Dolphy's Out to Lunch. And you suggest that one of the key features of Dolphy's work is how his music kind of dramatised or problematised notions of acceptability and unacceptability in jazz improvisation. And obviously, the cl one of the closenesses there is around race, of course. So I wonder if you could explain that, that a bit. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I... Uh, I, of course, I, uh, in some ways, I want to have everything both ways, right? Um, I, I'm trying to demystify improvisation, but I'm also trying to <laughs> look at this music that I find incredible um, and and think seriously about how Dolphy improvises. But I did want to try to take a different route there. Um, most, you know, Dolphy, I think, is under-discussed in jazz studies, and most discussions of his music really focus on what we could call a kind of music theoretical framing where, you know, the question is always about his wild intervallic leaps and his idiosyncratic way of navigating chord changes. And the discussion has always been sort of circulating around, well, it sounds really out there, but if you pay attention in a serious way to what he's doing, there's always a connection to the chord structure. And, and he's, he's actually, playing jazz the right way, quote unquote. It's just that he's so adventurous that that can be difficult to um, hear. And what really bothers me about this reading is not only that it um, ignores 
again, extra musical factors like Dolphy's race, like Dolphy's gender presentation, like the economic and financial limitations that um, overdetermined his career trajectory, I would say. Um, but it also it also vindicates Dolphy retroactively through the very terms that he was trying to challenge and contest. It, it says Dolphy did adhere to jazz orthodoxy. It's just that it's difficult to hear. Um, and that's what makes him an exceptional improviser. That's what makes him worthy of belonging in the canon of jazz greats. Um, to me, Dolphy's project even though he tended to talk about it like Coltrane in more universal humanistic terms, his project is um, uh, low-key, very radical, and, and, and sometimes not so much low-key. Uh, he is, is challenging, I think, a critical framing of what jazz was understood to be at the time, particularly as advocated by the white men who predominantly ran the jazz press and who, you know, not uniformly, but overwhelmingly dismissed Dolphy and his music as eccentric. And I, and I try to think here with um, Francesca Royster's use of eccentricity uh, coming out of Daphne Brooks and, um, uh, and use that as a socio-musical framework to think about what Dolphy's music, like how it riled up people's sense of something that was threatening somehow. Um, eccentricity is this really generative thing that allows me to think, yes, his musical choices did read as eccentric. His, his way of navigating chord changes was very idiosyncratic. But eccentricity is also about how Dolphy gets interpreted by the critical discourse by the press apparatus, in part because he's a black musician making creative music, which, you know, Moten and Fred Moten and, and Eric Lewis have, uh, uh, and George Lewis have written about um, uh, for a long time, as like anytime there's black experimental creativity, <laughs> it, the first move by the press is to dismiss it as eccentric or erratic or crazy. Um and there, but there's also other ways that, you know, Dolphy's gender presentation, for example, doesn't necessarily adhere to the sort of normative tropes of jazz masculinity. Um, and so it, all of this sort of comes together to make him seem like a singular and unique kind of a threat, if you will, to um, jazz orthodoxy, which is not about music as such, as much as it is about um uh, what's proper and improper and and white critics trying to uh, retain control over a discourse that that Dolphy was challenging. The the nuance in this chapter is brilliant because it, it's you managed to kind of lay out this, you use the term axes of eccentricity, which I think is a really useful way of thinking, you know, in multiple directions at once about the kind of the policing of that music without without denying the the creativity and the at times kind of strangeness, even on its own terms of some of Dolphy's music. And, I, and you use this idea of faith, right? You, you need to listen with faith uh, about parsing music, uh, sounds that are on the border, what might be considered noise or whatever, which I thought was so brilliant and really spoke to me. It helped me understand some of my own experiences of listening to jazz and listening to, especially as a kind of novice jazz listener, stuff that becomes, that moves in a kind of, 
unexpected direction. <laughs> I'll, I'll jump in quickly just to say that that um, there's a line in there from from my advisor Barry Shank uh, that gets at what you're talking about. He says. You know, something to the effect of music can transform our, our listening just at the moment that we decide that what we're hearing is music. And, you know, to me, that's that's such a powerful thing to think about. Um, I'm also thinking here about uh, one of my favorite drummers, Taishan Sori, uh, was asked one time, like, what kind of music? He has this famously capacious um, listening practice, and someone asked him, like, what about music you don't like? And he said something to the effect of, well, you know, when I find music I don't like, what I do then is I listen to it nonstop until I like it. <laughs> I think about that all the time. That was a good, a good uh, ethos, I think, certainly. And then for, at the very end of that chapter, and I think this really helps bring um, into focus, again, some of the key overarching themes of your book, you suggest that when historically situating Dolphy's music and listening to it uh, and then thinking about how it was performed, you suggest that it's point blank impossible to improvise like that anymore, which I think really ra- rounded off that um, chapter nicely, but I wondered if you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, thank you. I um, It may be one of the more polemical things, but it's something that I really believe. Um, I absolutely don't think that you can improvise like Eric Dolphy anymore. And I think there are multiple reasons for this. The the thing I'm trying to draw out at the end of that chapter by saying that is that you can't, that even if you produce the same notes or even if you internalize Dolphy's style so thoroughly as to combine it with your own musical voice and then, you know, uh, produce something original that takes inspiration from Dolphy, so forth and so on, that's not, it's not about the notes. It's not about the notes and it's not about the chords. Um, the reason you can't sound like Dolphy anymore is because you can't go back to the 1960s and recapture that incredibly specific contingent space where his voice sounded something radical and challenging. Um, the when it was heard for the first time in the culture it signified you know in in jim crow america something that was uh in, that was caught up in in race and identity and discourses about proper and improper um that have not gone away but have radically transformed and i and i um so I, again, am trying to draw attention to the non, quote unquote, non-musical, because of course this stuff is all connected to each other, but the extra musical factors that I think get less attention, particularly when talking about someone like Dolphy, to think about um, how those same exact notes coming out of the, the record out to lunch would have signified different social and musical connotations when people heard it then versus now and the impossibility of going back into that total social space and hearing what it sounded like then. Um, to me, that's what improvisation is about um, when we're listening to Eric Dolphy. Yeah, totally. Uh, so I think carrying on with the idea of the um, kind of inattention paid to extra musical factors in shaping improvisation. So in the, in the following chapter, you move on to this duo, Mr. K, who are uh, a Nordic jazz duo. Um, I imagine listeners might be a, 
less likely to be familiar with them than they are with Eric Dolphy. So I wonder if you could just start by telling us a bit about them, what this music's a bit like, and then in particular the relationship that European and Nordic jazz education might play in this picture. Yeah, I I love this group. Um, uh, Mr. K, as you say, is a, a, an improvising duo. Um, and on this record, Left Exit in particular, which uh, it's been a minute, but if memory serves, came out in 2015, um, they're joined by a, a two additional musicians, um, uh, two of whom I, I uh, spoke w- with uh, for the book. Um what I love about this, and you're right, you know, potentially much less well known uh, for various reasons um, uh, than Eric Dolphy, but the reason I think this example sort of like elbowed its way to the front and had to be in the book, I just, I, I listened to one track for this chapter. It's called Waves, Linens, and White Light. And I continue to be enchanted by it because of its pure repetition um it's a two minute long track it's this tiny little thing this little um sort of moment that's just handed to you and if you didn't know that the entire album was freely improvised you would just hear this as um a, a minimalist composition or, or something to that effect. It's very serene. It's incredibly repetitive, almost, um, uh, you know, the initial musical gestures that you hear continue through almost unchanged for the entire two minutes, uh, save slight variations at, at certain key moments and save for a very subtle um, clarinet improvisation that is mostly sort of decorative noise textures that uh, one almost barely notices them. So they're not fundamental to the thing that's happening. The thing that's happening is repetition. And I love this because, um, so what happened for the album was they improvised the entire thing in, in several long sessions and then isolated from the collective improvisation, um, certain moments or interactions that then became tracks. So they were pulled from a larger thing, but they weren't edited in any way. They just extracted moments. And so I got really fascinated thinking about how is it that a completely freely improvised track results in almost pure repetition because we've been trained to think that improvisation is the opposite of repetition. And this is really where I get, um, this is an argument I pick up in the second half of the book around everyday life. Um, but one of the claims that the book makes is that improvisation is not, in fact, the opposite of repetition. Uh, and and a, a listening to a track like this can maybe clue us into some of that dynamic. Um, where the chapter goes specifically is I thought, like, in order to understand why free improvising musicians would land on a sound that becomes very meditative and repetitive, I thought um, really had, again, so much to do with their contingent circumstances. I think there's a a tradition of free improvisation that exists in Europe, particularly perhaps in Nordic countries, that um, doesn't necessarily exist or exist in the same way in the States. And it has to do with um, this this sort of uh, identity crisis that George Lewis has written about, um, where, you know, in the 1960s, European musicians really made a concerted effort, lots of them, not all of them, to um, discover 
or forge, you know, what a uniquely European approach to improvised music might be. And where that, to make a long story short, where that ends up going a lot of times is like in the direction of sounds that are more akin to things we might associate with quote unquote new music or Western art music in the avant-garde tradition, um, including uh, minimalism. And uh, to flesh this out, then I did a, a, a little dive into um, the school uh, the Trondheim Conservatory where these musicians either attended or taught or both. Um, and I try to uncover the pedagogical culture there, which I think very clearly illustrates that how people are approaching and learning improvisation and even jazz specifically differs wildly from the sort of dominant model of U.S. jazz education. Um, in fact, the improvisation program at Trondheim was founded in direct and explicit opposition to the methods that were being employed at Berkeley in the 70s and 80s. So, um, you know, all of that, I don't think determines in a linear way why we hear their improvisations as repetitive, but it, it does help paint a picture, again, of one never simply learns how to improvise, one learns how to improvise in very, very contingent, particular ways that have lots to do with culture, identity, uh, tradition, as much or more so than any sort of musical vocabulary or techniques that they're learning. Yeah, I think one of the great things about this chapter is because in critical improvisation studies in general, and obviously a lot of this can tend towards abstraction, and, and, I, and I know you're rightfully wary of any kind of too neat causation going on but you make a very quite a, a, a clear case for hearing basically kind of hearing a kind of nordic social democratic underpinning right in in coming through in this sound but that's also very very connected to at times problematic uh assertions of white european and white nordic identity and and so as much as it you the, the music isn't an analog for the politics it comes through in a way that's it's really um really striking and i think much more developed than a lot of the literature that talks about the nordic tone or whatever can be um so yeah and and one of the one other thing i wanted to talk about in this chapter is you talk about listening here as well and listening to repetition um which i think kind of um prefigures so again as you say some of the stuff in everyday life about repetition never really being repetition so I, I wondered if you could talk about listening to the record and how that relates to contingency i suppose yeah um uh thanks for that question i i sort of forgot about that part of the chapter um it is really important this is the place that i sort of chose to deal with the question of recorded sound or or what it means to record improvisation which you know has been a topic that people have dealt with um but i was thinking about it primarily thinking with david grubbs um and just uh, about how recording um uh, you know, today we tend to think about recording as, again, one of these things that stands in contrast to improvisation because the recording is closed ostensibly, whereas the improvised moment is open and we'll never recapture that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but one of the things that David Grubbs and others have drawn attention to is how recordings, well, first of all, that's a recent way of thinking about recordings. It used to be understood that recordings um, were you know, quintessentially contingent, that they captured something about the very specific, you know, because again, it was more about the closed 
understanding of contingency than the open understanding. So recordings were really um, uh, importantly focused on, you know, uh, capturing the thumbprint of where it was made and, and traces of the physical space always remain in the recording in a way that might not be perceptible, but which is super real. So I talk about recordings as contingent, but I also talk about listening to recordings as contingent, of course, um, as another way of thinking about records as being if you want, open, open objects, even though we've been trained to think about them as very, very closed down. Um, yeah. And I just talk about like, I don't know, um, at various points I talk about like, this record sounds really different when I'm like making soup, you know, in the middle of an afternoon, than the first time I listened to it when I was doing my PhD research. And I try to narrate a little bit of how my listening transforms when you add repetition to it. So it's again, this idea of Repetition not being um, uh, closed down, but actually being the mechanism that opens things back up for you again. Uh, the third or tenth time I heard this track, I heard it in a completely different way than I did the first or second time. So, um, yeah, it does try to prefigure some arguments about repetition uh, in the back half of the book. Yeah, yeah, I found it so helpful. Um yeah for, for thinking through repetition improvisation and then the, the improvisational aspects of musical listening um that are yeah that are afforded by by recording i suppose and so, so then moving on to the the next musical chapter um you talk about the track gun Week and elephant in the room from blood moon which is an album by ingrid laubrock and chris davis so you there you attach great significance to the fact that they are they operate as a duo um so I wonder if you could explain a bit about what it is about the duo and then specifically this duo that takes on significance in improvised music. Yeah. Um, the duo brings into relief, I think in a unique way, dynamics that happen in improvised music, but that might be more mediated with more people involved. Um, the, the duo format is really um, sort of prized as a, certainly not only a pedagogical format, but it, it is prized as a, as a exercise for people learning how to improvise precisely because the other person's choices are perceptible so immediately and directly when it's just the two of you playing together that it really helps to sort of supercharge your perceptive capacity, your ability to listen to somebody else and, and, and respond in a way that, um, you know, whether it is, um, uh, supporting or contrasting with their musical choices that responds in a way that um, is mutually generative. So I do think the duo format is really important to thinking about this performance because what I hear in the performance is um, musical reciprocity and practices of care. I hear a kind of a feminist affect in this performance, um, which you know, is not strictly reducible to the fact that these two performers are women. That's much too simplistic, but it, it, it becomes perceptible to me in listening to the way that they musically respond to one another. Um, and, and not, again, it's not strictly either complementary or contrasting. It's 
whatever is understood to be needed in the moment um, to sort of fully um, yeah to to listen deeply and to and to respond in in a reflexive way to me evinces this kind of musicality and care that I do here as a feminist practice. And I primarily am drawing on Pauline Oliveros here, obviously for deep listening as a practice of reciprocity. Um, but also, you know, and these two things are not the same, but I do think they're generative to think about in concert. Uh, um, uh, Oliveros's practice has been talked about um, with reference to a kind of lesbian musicality where um, the dynamic is not so much uh to have power over a certain musical outcome as it is to respond in the moment and to respond in kind. Again, this reciprocity. Um, and I hear that in a really embodied way through the improvisations most specifically. That record has two improvisations on it. And I think listening to them at the same time and just hearing how they uh, play together really gives us a window into their working relationship, their friendship over many, many years, their musical vocabulary, which has become deeply intertwined. You know, they're very influential on one another, their voices, their musical personalities. Um, and I think, yeah, it, it's so clear to, to me, in part because it's just the two of them. It's unmediated, it's unfiltered, and you can hear them talking to each other. And that's interesting, actually, because I wanted to come on to the fact that later on in the chapter, you you suggest that you've got some kind of some beef with the uh, the uh, term conversational as I are talking about this kind of playing. So I wondered if you could expand on that because that, that interested me because it's kind of a it's certainly like a a lazy cliche that I often reach for when trying to talk about you know good improvisation. But you suggest that it's it's not that, and I, I thought I really enjoyed that bit. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's true. Um, it's it's a difficult thing to talk about because uh, language is, you know, as people like Vijay Iyer have written, uh, so very obviously improvisational. Um, and there are elements about musical improvisation that I think can be productively compared to a conversation. Um, but, and I'm definitely not the first person to point this out either. Um, but, you know, when you think about what's happening especially again in a context with a duo where you can really hear this in a kind of unfiltered way. Um, if, if musical improvisation is a conversation, it's a conversation where people are talking over one another a whole lot, you know? Um, and, and it's much more, I mean, nobody would necessarily really have a conversation where it's completely predicated on either, you know, rolling with what the other person is putting down or setting up some sort of contrasting platform that will support what the other person is put and it's happening simultaneously i mean some of these dynamics do happen in conversation but the musical aim and the conversational aim are not the same and i and i do think that um uh, because the improvisation is so deeply entangled with uh, language, that's just been a little bit too easy of a metaphor for what's going on here um trying to think if there's anything else i want to say about that uh maybe so but i'll leave it there for now <laughs> no I, mean, I think i was reading that and i was inclined to agree to be honest um i just think about the, the kind of idea of care and reciprocity as a as an approach to kind of doing good improvisation it just made me think again of 
all those times, both as a performer and as a listener, as a gig attendee, where you've where there's a really noticeable absence of reciprocity, right? Uh, and an absence of listening, to be honest. Um, and again, how that is probably the more common form of improvisation as it takes place, you know, in, in most musical experiences, which uh, again, helps to kind of de-exceptionalize. You kind of demonstrate the, you demystify through demonstrating a good, almost mystical form of reciprocity on on, on recording, I suppose, which is, uh, which is helpful. Uh, you talk then about um, kind of, practice-based feminist politics um, that particularly Ingrid Laubrock um, carries out in her, the way that she engages with the music industry and how it's something more than a politics of representation. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, that's a great point. Uh, Because I talked to her um, and and I kind of asked, you know, like, um, it seems to me, I think my question was something to the effect of, it seems to me that um, these days it's popular music that is really the site where people are interrogating questions of identity and belonging. Um, improvisation, improvised music, which, you know, most famously in the 1960s was associated with black power politics to a certain extent, um, used to be very politically charged, but today it seems rarer to hear it talked about in those terms. And her response was super nuanced. Um, I think she agreed to a certain extent and talked about, you know, her reasons for not necessarily foregrounding, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a feminist, my music is feminist, so forth and so on. And what I, what I read in her response was really a reluctance to sort of, or, or an effort to sort of distance herself from this kind of performative feminism across um, uh, the music industry, because it becomes so easy to sort of, yeah, embrace, uh, you know, um, what uh, feminist scholars would call sort of post-feminist or like popular feminist iterations where it's quite influenced by neoliberal culture. It's all about the individual. It's all about self-empowerment, you know, um, your attitude about um, gendered uh, inequality is your problem. And if you can sort of overcome it and, and have, you know, girl power and be a girl boss, then uh, that's all that's really required is for you to show up and like have a positive attitude and so forth. Um, and it can be very surface level and it can be very uh, take place at the, in, in the realm of appearance and aesthetics versus like, you know, a more political economic perspective would, would ask deeper questions about like, how are these people getting paid? Like, what's the, what's the equity in the industry? You know, how, how do people get together and what are their opportunities? So, Ingrid Larbrock talks more about that side of it. She talks more about like, here are the things that I do to, you know, that I, I guess you could think about as being feminist, um, but I'm not out there sort of talking about it and making it a part of my brand per se. And what she talks about is like building community, uh, mentoring students, you know, uh, and, and I think too about Chris Davis being involved in the Berkeley Institute for Jazz and Gender Justice, um, and I try to just, you know, draw a map of like all the different interactions and sort of logistical ways that their feminist praxis comes out both musically and socially, even if you're not necessarily seeing them out there talking about feminist politics in jazz music. Although increasingly that is also happening, I think particularly with Davis. Um, so that's the kind of a nuance that I try to draw out there. 
Yeah, and it, it was once again a really good demonstration of the, I guess, the entanglement of, of the social, the improvisational, and the political in ways that are more nuanced than often gets discussed. I think so. It came through quite strongly there. And so then, in, in the second half of the book, you kind of open, you zoom out, and you take the concept further in outside of the musical realm. Um, Let's talk about improvisation in everyday life. And you start by discussing walking, uh, right, and, and urban space. Um, and then you move through other aspects of everyday life as well, like baking and things like that. And first of all, I just wanted to ask, you know, there's lots that happens in everyday life. How did, how did you choose the stuff to concentrate on? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, walking was the easy bit. I have a whole chapter on walking because, um, again, I was uh, reading Deserto and he uses walking as a sort of metonym for a bunch of other everyday activities. So I thought, okay, let's follow him and take walking as a stand-in for all types of everyday activities, which again, everyday life, ostensibly repetitive, ostensibly banal, is so often held up as what improvisation is not, right? When you're, <laughs> when you're in everyday life and you're doing the dishes, that's how you know you're not improvising. Well, hang on. Why then, when I'm reading Deserto, is he using explicitly the language of improvisation all the time? There are multiple points where he evokes the word improvisation while he's talking about boring things, walking, reading, you know? Um, so I, I decided to, to focus on walking because he did and to look at it and say, what for Deserto is, is improvisational about walking? And if we can figure that out, then maybe that helps us think about uh, all sorts of other everyday activities. Um, from there, the choices were much more idiosyncratic um, uh, because of my own everyday life. Um, I was doing a lot of baking at the time, the whole process was flush with contingencies I felt would be really generative. I'm like, hang on, this did not turn out like I thought it would. <laughs> um, that's a bummer. I have to throw away this loaf of bread. Um, but maybe this is like really going to be helpful for writing about everyday life. So I started with that one. Um, I did a bunch of revising on this one. I had to throw away some stuff about inhabiting and the contingency of making space. Um, which I love. And I was thinking about the work of Dohosa in that stuff. And, uh, and, and then I got into uh, Georges Parekh a little bit more than I end up doing in the book. Um, but listening felt like a really great example because of how it connects to the musical side of the book. Um, working, I, I felt I had to do something to address contingent labor um, almost exclusively because of the conceptual connection to my idea of contingency, but then of course also because it is so clearly this deeply neoliberal um, crisis, particularly in academia, but also in food delivery. I mean, I mean, Naomi Klein wrote about this decades ago. This is like the Mick Jobs argument. The, the workplace is transforming, permanent jobs are being turned into contingent jobs um, very much on purpose and to weaponize, uh, uh, again, the language of improvisation, which is then sold to us as the thing. It's the very thing that's harming us, but it's sold to us as this is the benefit 
is that you get to make your own schedule. You get to have creative freedom over your control. You can decide when you want to drive Lyft and when you don't. Um, so side hustles aren't actually exploitative. It's total creative freedom and control, right? So I felt like, again, to deal with this um, question of improvisation is going to save us from neoliberalism, I had to include working as a part of this. And then finally, I look at perceiving because it's in some ways the biggest everyday activity that we do, right? It, it houses everything under it. And and folks like Marlon Ponty uh, and have been saying since the 60s that perception, which is very often understood as, um, you know, rational and clear is the very realm of indeterminacy. Um, and I follow that through Sarah Ahmed, who's super critical to the book, uh, talking about orientation and how our perception of the world is very much affected by who we are and how we come into situations. Um, and then also, again, linking that back to Vijay Iyer's arguments, who in, when he brings up, you know, questions of police violence against black communities, he talks about how the self-same event will be described, you know, along completely divergent perceptions of reality of what happened in that moment. And it, and it all falls along the, the axis of race and identity once again. So to start at the end of what you're talking about there, I mean, you know, one thing that really struck me towards the end of the book was that, and, and you do touch on this towards the end in particular, that um, the kind of improvisation of perception, the improvisation of how we perceive reality is feels like it's never been more contingent, right? It's never felt like we have fewer points of reference with that bind us to particularly people who are like a politically different persuasion or whatever, right? Like um, it's, it's maybe a slightly... I don't know, hacky point to make about political polarization or whatever, but uh, using the, that framework about you know contingent perception, it felt yeah, it felt quite fitting. So just to, to jump all the way back, one thing you make quite clear um, is that some of these theorists of everyday life who use who use as a starting point like Perec and Lefebvre, their everyday for them is set up as maybe universal and you do quite a lot of work to kind of break down the reasons why there's no such thing as the universal everyday. Um, obviously in terms of navigating urban space in particular, in particular how that's constrained by policing, by questions of race and identity. And I also thought about, you know, bodily ability is, is, is immensely significant there. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about um, the idea of the flaneur, right? And then, and then how you take that, modify it and run with it into the ideas of improvisation. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Um, yeah, so this is where the conversation about walking goes. It starts um, more in the, uh, what Disserto would say about it, which is like, yeah, everybody walks in a singular way. They have their unique gait. They make their own paths. You know, I talk about the desire line briefly, so forth and so on. But then I try to zoom out and I say, okay, if walking if we can sort of compare it to improvising music, uh, the path on the street is the musical score, right? And when you deviate from the path, uh, you're improvising, right? Okay, well, as in music, I don't think it's quite that simple. So let's zoom out and think about the extra, quote unquote, extra musical factors here. Um, where is the walking path in what kind of a neighborhood? Who are you actually walking on it? Right. Because again, my experience of walking down uh, a certain street is going to be, you know, potentially wildly different from your experience. Again, thinking about like, if you're, if you're a woman walking alone in a city at night, like that is going to have a different affective 
um, a tenor potentially for you than it would for someone who doesn't identify as a woman. Um, so I, I, I try to bring those social questions into it, I think, briefly with Leslie Kern about, um, you know, public transportation being incredibly inhospitable to people who are pregnant, for instance, or carrying strollers or like all sorts of accessibility issues. Um, yeah. And then and and then I um, turn to uh, Sadie Hartman and and uh, Christina Sharp uh, to think about some of these more racialized components, um, not least of which is because Hartman also uses Deserto to talk about contingency, um, the negotiation between freedom and constraint um, in scenes of subjection, particularly, um, but also um, Christina Sharp's thinking in um, in, in the wake, I mean, talks about uh, environments and atmospheres of anti-blackness that I think have to be considered a part of our environments as much as the concrete that we're walking on, as much as the infrastructure that facilitates certain things while prohibiting others, right? So um, I love the French school of everyday life for its sort of focus on conceptual levels of reality, but to leave it there is um, a, a non-starter, I think, because, you know, the criticism of that way of thinking is like, whose everyday life are we talking about here is really um, the other critical uh, component to trying to think about that. And I guess that brings us back to the, the point you made at the beginning about in the context of everyday life, improvisation is Although you say you know improvisation kind of characterizes much of perception, the uh, compulsion to improvise is much more pronounced on certain people who occupy certain social positions. Um, which you you'd speak through the kind of the idea of the everyday and the extraordinary commingling, um, which I thought was quite a, a quite a generative like construction there. And then you ultimately suggest at the end of this chapter that any structural difference between musical improvisation and everyday life at the level of form. Um, is to get hung up on the differences between musical performance and the performance of everyday life, getting caught up on questions of genre, which I thought was a really interesting way to bring it back. To, and it was a slightly unexpected turn to bring genre into the equation again. So I wondered if you could uh, talk us through that. Yeah, so for me, I'm trying to deal with throughout the book a paradox. On the one hand, I think improvisation is basically coextensive with contingency. So wherever there's contingency, there's improvising that happens necessarily as a result. I think that's 100% universally true. Improvisation is equally contingent, equally the same process, whether it happens in a performance of giant steps or you walking down the street. I think improvisation is doing the exact same thing in both of those cases. At the same time, the whole book is predicated on the idea that Differences make a difference. And that <laughs> as soon as we accept that premise, okay, now the real work begins because everything about every improvisation is entirely singular. And you have to pay attention to the differences that matter because otherwise you're missing something. So it's a completely paradoxical thing. And the way that I try to thread that needle is to, is to situate it in terms of like form and content um, or virtual and actual if you want to go there. Uh, the form of improvisation, the way that it engages contingencies is identical. It, it, no matter what situation you're in, 
you bring to that situation a certain set of capacities and you navigate that situation in the in the way that you can or are able to and that's just a hundred percent of the time true right when you start to fill in the content of that form that's where genre matters like okay yes, um, uh, it's different to walk down the street than it is to play giant steps, right? It's different to walk down the street as a white person than it is if you're a person of color. Um, those differences absolutely matter. However, the, the fundamental point that I'm trying to make about improvisation, um, some people would suggest that what you're doing when you're playing giant steps is fundamentally on a formal level different than what you're doing when you are walking down the street. And that's what I'm trying to argue against. I think that is purely a matter of genre, right? And what really clicked this into place for me is like, um, first of all, I was walking in the UK and I almost got hit by a bus and I was like, oh my God, I don't know how to walk here because I stopped paying attention for a minute and the streets are backwards. Um, you know, so I'm, all of a sudden this familiar thing is unfamiliar to me. Um, but, the, but the other thing about it is like, ostensibly it's harder to play a course of giant steps, right? Than it is to walk. But again, that's always only ever conditional on contingencies. Like if, if you happen to be without the use of your legs, you know, it's going to be easier to learn how to play giant steps than it is to learn how to walk. Um, both, situations are singular, but you encounter them in the same way, which is to say you navigate contingencies uh, using what you can bring to bear on the situation. Yeah, and, and I suppose one aspect of that and thinking thinking with the jazz example, Janet Sex example, is also about the sometimes overbearing influence of tradition and the way that relates to, but also like an accretion of your own experiences of repetition, which is something that you take into the, your discussion of baking, right? Of, of cooking about um, working with the uncertainty of, of yeast, right? And the uncertainty of, of uh, baking and how very tiny deviations that only you can sense through mundane repetition of experience builds, builds up. Um, and this just, this really felt to me like uh, an analog of, yeah, um, improvising jazz with a knowledge of the jazz tradition and trying to work within those boundaries and respond to past experiences. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about the baking thing a little bit more. Um, and you then take it into quite a, a, quite a big statement about the opposition between structure and agency, which is, uh, as I was reading that, I felt like, wow, we've got here from a loaf of bread. This is amazing. Um, <laughs> so I wondered if you could, you could talk through that. Yeah, that's, that's funny. Yeah. Um, the baking thing I hope helps to make clear the, the total indistinguishability of open and closed notions of contingency at a certain level. The, the closer you look at any ostensible openings, the more limitations and closures you find. And the closer you look at ostensible closures, the more indeterminacies you find, I think. So yeah, okay, here's this recipe that says, um, you know, first you put this flour together with this amount of water, and then you add this yeast, and then you add this salt, right? And I'm reading that recipe, and I'm doing that three times a week, and I'm doing it exactly the same way. And um, this is equivalent to playing a score, because a recipe is the instructions, and the score is the instructions, right? So this is ostensibly repetitive. It's ostensibly the opposite of improvisation, until you start to look a little bit closer. And um, first of all, I'm fallible, so I'm not doing it the same way every time. 
Uh, secondly, I live in a contingent world. So again, I, I try to think about, let's get off the musical thing, which is the instructions I'm following. And let's talk about how I'm feeling, right? I'm mixing this loaf of bread today, but on Monday I was mixing it and I had a completely different emotional or affective state because I had just had a certain phone call and it really upset me or I was really in, enlivened by it or what have you. Um, and uh, finally, uh, thinking about the environment, right? Um, I can do this same thing, but the water here at my current apartment is quite different from the water at my previous apartment. And all this stuff is a changing sight unseen. For instance, the bacteria on my hand is intermingling with the bacteria in the sourdough culture. And this stuff is alive and it's changing and it's contingent. So again, um, to sort of get off the surface level of thinking about, yeah, I, I bake the same loaf of bread three times a week and it's repetitive, but it, it's actually um, quite generative. So again, the collapse between openings and closures is also kind of, yeah, I mean, following Hartman again, what I think about the um, structure agency binary, it's not a binary at all. It, there, it's a co-constitutive, co-emergent series of negotiations. Um, and that, yeah, that follows pretty much straight from how Hartman thinks about Deserto. Yeah, really great grounding in going through the, those ideas. And as you mentioned, then the, I guess your writing then takes this kind of a, a, a really a great shift in register, which I really enjoyed into kind of a, a bit of righteous anger as you talk about about labour, right? And uh, and you've, you've touched on it a little bit, but um, it was yeah, it felt it really brought home all the stuff you're talking about contingency and, and this phrase you use, which is the uneven distribution of contingency, which I thought was such a great a great way of bringing this into this you know conversations about precarity um as a kind of shared condition and you, you use academic um labor to talk about that and we're talking in the middle of um lots of university strikes in the uk uh, and a general strike wave in the uk where i'm recording and it just made me think that about the valorization of contingency as an end, end in itself being self-evidently wrong-headed because we could all do with a lot less contingency at the moment right a, a lot more security and i suppose one thing you didn't touch on but the elephant in the room over all of this is the climate right um and that's maybe a whole other book but and, and i know there's kind of eco-musicological stuff that maybe could be brought to bear on this but um yeah that's that section's brilliant i mean i feel like I've just summarized it a bit. I wonder if there's any more you want to talk about uh, there about contingency, labor, and precarity. No, I think you put it really well. Um, on the one hand, looking at the different kinds of contingencies that get forced on certain folks, uh, and then on the other hand, the very empowering kinds of contingencies that you know the the capitalist class gets to have as a result of that displacement. Um, but yeah, just like you said. He, like improvisation is valorized for its openness, right? But what we need, I think, here is is predictability, stability, all the things that are ostensibly bad that improvisation fights against. And and, and yeah, and I just I talk about being a contingent with other people, working in in a group in solidarity, and and being very closed and forceful and knowing about what it is that we need, which is stability, predictability, a platform on which to be able to work. Um, this is all about concrete, known, 
demands. Um, so we, we've already gone quite long, and there's a, the whole, a whole chapter on perception to talk about, and which, which you have touched on a bit. But I, I suppose, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're kind of making the claim here that contingency and the improvisational qualities of it are fundamental to how we perceive the world, and as you say, uh, fundamental in our differences. So it's not it's simultaneously universal and deeply particular. Um, and in you know throughout the book, you're trying to demystify improvisation. Um, and then at the end, you imply, imply that through this ubiquity, it's kind of invisible as a consequence. So how do you resolve this disappearance of improvisation as, as an improvisational scholar? Like, where do we look instead? So what I'm trying to deal with in the end is um, getting back to this question of like um, awareness and perception. So I do, I do fundamentally maintain that we are improvising all the time, that improvisation is... Um, coextensive with it being alive that that contingency is happening always and so therefore improvisation is happening always i do think though and this is where some improvisation scholars like tracy mcmullen have made really compelling arguments i do think there is at the end of the day something special and particular about what musicians and actors and um you know, creative folks who who consciously embrace improvisation as a part of their practice, I do think there's something special about that. Um, so the question I ask at the end of the book is like, having sort of thoroughly, hopefully made my case, now there's time to consider what changes, if anything, when we start to attend to or become aware of the improvisations that we are always already participating in whether in music or in everyday life. So I call this musical improvisation in the book following John Cage's idea of musical listening, which again is about listening to traffic, but making a switch in your brain that decides to listen to it in a musical way, to treat it as music, to treat it as if, and then it opens up all these other possibilities. So what if we treated the improvisations that we're always already participating in as if they were in fact improvisations and not banal, repetitive, walking and baking and so forth and so on. Um, does that transform what's possible? In the end, I come out um, in an ambivalent place about it. I don't know, right? I want to be very careful. I want to resist, um, again, the temptations to, to sort of overinvest this, at the end of the day, small idea with political significance. But I do think that it is if and when improvisation becomes political, enters into conversation with politics in a productive way, it is through the moments when we are aware of our contingencies and are orienting consciously, constantly, in, in spite of what's coming our way and to the best of our abilities towards what we want. And I think even though that's, <laughs> I think that's, a kind of musical improvisation, right? We might fail. We might not hit the changes the right way. Um, but it is through the self continuous self aware practice of orienting towards what we imagine our desires to be that musical improvisation, I think links up with this question of politics, um, um, individual and collective. Yeah, and, and you, towards the end, you bring this idea of a kind of, ultimately, I guess, a, a radical contextualism, right? A, a radical awareness of context on each person's part. Um, in dialogue with Stuart Hall's notion of conjunctural analysis, which I thought was a really, a really good way of 
not generalizing it, but bringing it to bear on the on the idea of of analysis, right, and of, of understanding the world that we're in and, and understanding politics. And then just before that, you you, you bring that again into dialogue with uh, Ronciere's idea of the distribution of the sensible and the disruption of the sensible, if I've understood it right. I wondered to kind of finish how, how, how you bring those two into dialogue and, and what, I guess, what would that mean in practice, right? What would it mean to bring a musical improvisational approach to a, a politics of, of disrupting the sensible? Yeah, um, what a great question. Um, I think I'm going to turn to Ahmed to answer that question ultimately. Um, the What I find so generative about the distribution of the sensible as a concept is that even though it's not talked about in affective terms, that's kind of what it is about to me, right? Um, the perceptible, the thinkable, the, 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 the seeable, the, the audible. Um, so if musical improvisation is about navigating contingencies while working towards what you imagine you desire for a better world. You can't imagine that better world from the position of being stuck inside this world. That's why you can't turn improvisation into a method for liberation because you're we're stuck where with what we can perceive and, and what the order of the sensible is here and now. But so orienting otherwise, orienting towards a different future is going to require comfort with indeterminacy, which, you know, might be, and this is McMullen's point, uh, cultivated by getting comfortable with improvising all the time, uh, getting more comfortable orienting towards that, that unknown. Um, I don't know if that can become a method really. Uh, but um, Ahmed talks about uh, a social experience might be how we are thrown by contingency. So I think about that in relation to the uprisings in 2020, and I and I try to think about collective action not as something that we can sort of implement, but if we are orienting with our communities towards what we want, we are getting ready in a certain sense for a moment in which something might spill out into the world suddenly. And it is that thing that we are not capable of imagining or simply implementing that when it happens, call it an event, if you like, because we've been improvising, because we've been orienting, because we've been trying in these deeply small, profoundly inadequate ways, might get us ready to make a different world if the conditions suddenly become right for it, um, which I think is somewhat partially what we saw in 2020 was a, an event that, that, you know, nobody could foresee, but which, you know, really in some ways was about reimagining the world. Yeah, you've you've done the almost unthinkable, which is at end a book on a positive note, which is which is in in the kind of critical landscape. Normally, people don't manage that, so it's 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 excellent. Yeah, um, well, yeah, thanks so much for that. Um, what are you working on now? Um, yeah, I'm I'm really excited about my next project. I'm writing a book on um, 
uh, feminist affect in in contemporary indie rock, sort of after the riot girl moment. Um, so I have a piece on Soccer Mommy that'll be coming out in uh, Journal of Popular Music Studies uh, pretty soon. And uh, it's a part of that um, larger project, which I'm calling Big Feelings. Big Feelings. That oh, sounds great. Well, yeah, look forward to reading it. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Your questions were amazing. I really appreciate the time.